Whoever you are, we welcome you. Wherever you come from, we welcome you. Whomever you love, we welcome you. My name is Jeff Marsh, and it is my privilege to serve as worship associate for today's gathering. I am joined by our minister, the Reverend Steve Prosman, Colleen Teeley, our DRE, music director, Hal Walker, and the Unitarian Universalist Church of Kent Peace Choir. We are delighted to welcome you to this religious community. As Unitarian Universalists, we light a flame within a chalice as a symbol of sanctuary and safety to unite us in our worship and to remind us of our ongoing search for the light of truth. This morning, our chalice lighter is Megan. With gratitude as we honor our past, remembering with love the leaders, members, and friends of this congregation on whose legacy we now build, we light a chalice of memory. Please join me in each one of those. With trust in one another to honor our present, our mission to be a people who inspire love, seek justice, and grow in community, we light a chalice of faith. With hope for the future, to honor and hold before us a vision of the world made fair and all its people one, a world where there is peace and justice, a time when all shall dwell together in the beloved community, we light a chalice of hope.
Why do we build structures? As we gather in this building that has weathered 150 winters, I think about the innate urge to build. This desire starts in childhood. I know not what you did when you were a child, but me, I love to build forts. These started with a simple rearrangement of sofa cushions. My sister and I would set them up on their side in a box and cover it with the afghan that my Aunt Edie had crocheted for our family. Appliance boxes followed with small windows cut to see who lurked outside. This grew to more elaborate creations in the backwoods made of sticks and leafy boughs. In winter, snow forts were a necessity. A reason to build a fort was often part of a ritual of meeting a new kid and building a friendship. I thought I was unique in this enterprise, but have since learned that this is quite common for children. Many of you probably made a fort or two, I suspect. It is reasoned that the activity is an early effort to figure out how the world works and to explore independence. But as we age, the desire to build a fort fades, but the need to build a common space to share experiences transitions into the need to build more permanent structures. We build to provide lasting shelter and refuge as well as to gather for fellowship or commerce. We remodel and add on to make old spaces feel new and reflect the current inhabitants. As we gather in this fine old church that has seen its share of history and embark on the long process of building and renovation, let us remember the primal urge that led to its creation and the people that put up the first few sticks. Come, let us worship together. These are the words of the Reverend Kathleen McTeague. Here in the refuge of this Sabbath home, we turn our busy minds toward silence and our full hearts toward one another. We move together through the mysteries, the bright surprise of birth and the shadowed questions of death. In our walk between the two, we will be wounded and we will be showered with grace, amazing, unending. Even in our sorrows, we feel our lives cradled in holiness we cannot comprehend. And though we each walk within a vast loneliness, the promise we offer here is that we do not walk alone. This is a holy place in which we gather, the light of the earth brought in and held, touched then by our answering light, the flame on a chalice, the flicker of a candle, the lamps of our open faces brought near. In this place of silence and celebration, solemnity and music, we make a sanctuary and name our home. As we rededicate ourselves in this place to the service of love and the service of one another in the world, may this always be a house for all people, a home for love, a sanctuary of peace, grace, and hope. May it be so. Amen. We have two readings this morning. First is from Mary Oliver. Once, in fact, I built a house. It was a minuscule house, a one-room, one-floored affair set in the ivies and vincas of the backyard and made almost entirely of salvaged materials. Still, it had a door and four windows and, miraculously, a peaked roof so I could stand easily inside and walk around. After it was done and a door hung, I strung a line from the house so that I could set a lamp upon the built-in table 
and under one of the windows, across the yard. In the evening, with the lamplight shining outward, it looked very sweet, and it gave me much satisfaction. It seemed a thing of great accomplishment, as indeed for me it was. It was the house I had built. There would be no other. Whatever a house is to the heart and body of a man, refuge, comfort, and luxury, surely it is as much or more to the spirit. Think how often our dreams take place inside the houses of our imaginations. Sometimes these are fearful, gloomy, enclosed places. At other times they are bright and have many windows and are even surrounded by gardens combed and invitational or unpathed and wild. There are dream houses that pin themselves upon the windy porches of mountains that open their own windows and summon in flocks of wild and colorful birds. And there are houses that hunker upon narrow ice flows, adrift upon endless dark waters. Houses that creak, houses that sing, houses that will say nothing at all to you, though you beg and plead all night for some answer to your vexing questions. As such, houses in dreams are mirrors of the mind or the soul. So an actual house, such as I began to build, is at least a little of the inner state of mind manifest. Jung, in a difficult time, slowly built a stone garden and a stone tower. Thoreau's house at Walden Pond, 10 feet by 15 feet under the tall, arrowy pines, was surely a dream state come to life. Building my house, or anything else, I always felt myself becoming, in an almost devotional sense, passive and willing to play. Play is never far from the impress of the creative drive, never far from the happiness of discovery. Building my house, I was joyous all day long. Second reading is from Kenneth Patton, This House. This house is for the ingathering of nature and human nature. It is a house of friendships, a haven in trouble, an open room for the encouragement of our struggle. It is a house of freedom, guarding the dignity and worth of every person. It offers a platform for the free voice, for declaring, both in times of security and danger, the full and undivided conflict of opinion. It is a house of truth-seeking, where scientists can encourage devotion to their quest, where mystics can abide in a community of searchers. It is a house of art, adoring its celebrations with melodies and handiworks. It is a house of prophecy, outrunning times past and times present in visions of growth and progress. This house is a cradle for our dreams, the workshop of our common endeavor. A cradle for our dreams, the workshop of our common endeavor. Out of wood and stone, brick and glass, out of dreams and sacrifice, the people build a house. A house for the ingathering of nature and human nature. A house of friendships. A house of freedom, of truth-seeking. A house of art and a house of prophecy. A house of memory 
where the stories of this community and its journey through time are told to teach and remind us of who we are, and a house of hope which holds before us a vision to inspire us to reach for our highest aspirations. 150 years ago, the people built this house of brick and stone and wood and glass. It was a house of liberal religion in a time when conservative theology was the norm. The American Unitarian Association was less than 50 years old. The Universalist Church of America was 75 years old. The Civil War had ended just three years ago, and these United States were still tender and raw as the country sought to heal itself. The country's dominant theology was the stern, harsh Calvinism of the Puritans, who believed that God's chosen would go to heaven while everyone else was doomed to hell. Universalism, a child of the Enlightenment with its use of reason and scholastic reading of the Bible, rejected the concept of eternal damnation. Hell was banished. This faith chose instead to believe in the inherent goodness of humankind and the embrace of an all-loving God who welcomed everyone into heaven. Universalism spread rapidly across the country. Its message brought by preachers who were mostly rough-hewn circuit riders with little formal education. David Reich wrote, in the 19th century, Universalists took such pride in their ministers' humble backgrounds that it was an article of faith among them that the best way to ruin a good minister was to send him or her to theological school. These circuit riders, with their talent for improvisation and quick wit and their radical democratic bent, were quintessentially American, and their lives were the stuff from which good stories are made. Perhaps the best of these itinerant ministers was the Reverend Hosea Ballou, who would become the greatest universalist theologian of 19th century America. There's a story that when Ballou was riding on the circuit with a Methodist preacher, they got into a debate. The Methodist looked at Ballou and said, so, Brother Ballou, you're telling me that if there were no fires of hell to which I would be consigned, I could hit you over the head with a rock, steal your horse and saddle and ride away and still go to heaven. And Ballou replied without blinking an eye, if you were a universalist, the thought would never have occurred to you. <laughs> this was the optimistic, hope-filled, life-changing faith of universalism that brought 19 men and women, a mixture of movers and shakers, abolitionists, Civil War veterans, and longstanding community members together to begin the First Universalist Church of Kent on May 27, 1866. The Reverend Andrew Wilson assisted in founding the congregation and was its first minister. Shortly after the congregation's founding, its members wanted a permanent meeting place and a building committee formed on March 7, 1867. The new building, this new building, cost $17,000. Today's equivalent is $300,000. Realistically, it would cost us about a million dollars to replace this building. The money to build the church was subscribed by supporters and townspeople who, con who contributed to its construction. The land for the church was donated by philanthropist Marvin Kent, or of course whom the city is named. The church was built by a local carpenter named Joseph Gridley. The building stands on bedrock and its foundations are locally quarried sandstone that are two feet thick. 
The brick walls around us are 12 inches thick, and above us there are massive X-shaped trusses made of timbers which were hand-cut to support the roof, which was originally slate. On August 23, 1868, the church was dedicated. There is an early church record book I saw this week in which Reverend Wilson wrote about the dedication. There's an order of service that includes a choir voluntary, scripture reading a prayer, a hymn, a dedication prayer, an offering, and the sermon. What Reverend Wilson said that day is not recorded, but I imagine he would have spoken from his heart as he quoted the Bible making a case for universalism, talking about God as a God of love and this house as a place for love. Like his colleague, Reverend Williamson, perhaps Reverend Wilson would have said something like this. I don't care what your present faith may be. I don't care whether you agree with the atheist, the deist, the skeptic, or any one of the numerous denominations of professing Christians. One thing I know, you have not a faith which presents more glorious hopes or more heart-cheering anticipations than universalism, and it is impossible for you to invent one that should do so. He goes on, this is what universalism teaches. It tells a man to recognize in all around him the children of the same God and the heirs of the same inheritance as himself and calls on him to love them with their whole hearts. The lives and memories of those early universalists who began this congregation have faded for the most part into history, but their legacy lives on. This house of memory and hope that shines with the light of love, of peace, of beauty, of truth-seeking, of belonging. Through the years, that light has continued to shine, sometimes not as strongly as the congregation struggled in hard times. More than once, the congregation dwindled to the point where it seemed like the church would close, but faithful members kept its spirit and its ministries alive so that today, this house is a bright beacon of liberal faith leading the way toward greater justice, equality, and freedom in Kent and beyond. Through the years, the building has been modified a number of times in order to meet the congregation's needs and its ministries. There are a number of urban legends about the building, including the presence of the ghost of Abby Danforth, who was the congregation's first female minister. If you look on the cover of your order of service, what do you see on the church building? A steeple, right? So what's the legend about the steeple? A storm supposedly blew it off in about 1920, right? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. During that storm in July of 1920, lightning struck the steeple and set it on fire. There's a newspaper article Sally Burnell shared with me that says, while protecting the rest of the building, firefighters let the steeple burn down to a safe place where workmen could remove its ruins once the fire had been extinguished. The sanctuary has been remodeled a number of times and this current configuration dates from 1929. At one time, the front entry was bricked up to create an apartment for the minister and that was restored sometime after 1994. And now, as we dream about the future, we have a plan to restore this building, and there will be other changes so that this place will continue to be a suitable house for the human spirit. 
In her essay, Mary Oliver beautifully captures the spiritual qualities of such a house. You heard her write, whatever a house is to the heart and body of a person, refuge, comfort, and luxury, surely it is as much or more to the spirit. Think how often our dreams take place inside the houses of our imaginations. There are dream houses that creak, houses that sing, houses that say nothing at all to you, though you will beg and plead through the night for some answer to your vexing questions. As such houses in dreams are mirrors of the mind or the soul, so an actual house such as I began to build is at least a little of the inner state made manifest. What inner state does this house manifest? What is the spirit that draws us into this community? It's love. Although in the last 150 years much has changed, people have been born, died, ministers have come and gone. The Unitarians and the Universalists consolidated to become the Unitarian Universalist Association. The language we use is modern, and we are a people of diverse theologies, beliefs, worldviews, and philosophies. One thing has not changed in all that time, the love that ultimately wins, a love that is universal because it is so broad, so deep, so ultimate, that no one is excluded and no one is beyond its embrace. Reverend Scott Alexander writes of universalism that it's a wild and welcoming doctrine which can be summed up with this simplicity. There is a place, he says, set in this creation for every last man, woman, and child. A precious, safe place has been set for each and every one of us, period. And it is our human job to respect protect and nurture the well-being of all. He goes on, the early universalists said, pure and simple, that every human being, no matter how strange or flawed or unlovable or broken or weird they may seem to you, is to be protected, cherished, welcomed, and loved. These are lovely sentiments. But ours is not an easy faith to have in these days when there is such fear of those who are different than we are and so much ugly rhetoric in the news constantly. In the midst of the racism, the tribalism, and the hatred happening all around us, our universalist heritage asks us to be courageous by believing in the inherent worth and dignity of every person and to not just believe, but to remember and continue the work begun by our spiritual ancestors. Alexander goes on to say, Universalism is a promise to theologically hang in there with the complexities and cruelties of the human enterprise. It is the promise not to give up on people, but to keep struggling in our broken world for the improvement and inclusion of all. This promise, which you and I renew every week, means that we cannot sit back complacently in our privilege and comfort. If we truly want to honor the memory of the brave and hope-filled souls who 150 years ago built this house for the transforming work of love that is the legacy we celebrate today, we must answer love's call to be bold, to be audacious, to speak and to share and to live our universalist message of love and hope. So let us fling wide open the doors of this house and share our good news with the community of Kent and beyond. And our good news is this, we are in this together and there is a place for every single one of us. 
Every person, young or old, every skin color, every person, whether rich or poor, liberal or conservative, no matter who you love or what you believe, you are worthy of the love and inclusion and deserve to share in life's goodness and abundance. This, my friends, is the truth we must share, the faith we must live out, the dream we dare to dream. As we sing and we pray and honor our history and our heritage today, will you join me in this holy work of making this house a place of both memory and hope, a house of friendships, a house of art and prophecy, of truth-seeking, where love is truly our spirit? Yes? Thank you. May it be so, and in the spirit of universalism, let us labor together in love so that together we can make it so. Amen. Every month, one Sunday is dedicated to supporting agencies, ministries, and organizations in the Kent community and beyond that serve those in need. This month's special collection benefits Kent Social Services, our local nonprofit organization dedicated to enhancing the nutrition of low-income people in the Kent area via the Hot Meal Program, groceries for people, and cooking classes. I invite you as you consider your gift to Kent Social Services to make checks payable to the UU Church of Kent with KSS on the memo line or use a pew envelope marking the special collection box and including your name so we can credit you for the donation. Our home is the love that sustains us. Do you know what I mean when I say love? Do you know what I mean when I say love? Our home is the beauty between us. Do you know what I mean when I say beauty? Do you know what I mean when I say beauty? It's our time of living here in the house of memory and hope. She's seen us through the changes in the timelessness of ages. We rest in the living here. We rest in the loving here. We rest in the being here. Our home is the peace that defines us. Do you know what I mean when I say peace? Do you know what I mean when I say peace? Our home is the God that delights us. Do you know what I mean when I say God? Do you know what I mean when I say God? It's our time of living here in the house of memory and hope. She's seen us through the changes in the timelessness of ages. We rest in the living here. We rest in the loving here. We rest in the being. Here, our home is the moment we gather, we gather. Our home is the moment we gather, we gather. Do you know what I mean when I say home? 
Do you know what I mean when I say come home? It's our time of living here in the house of memory and hope. She's seen us through the changes in the timelessness of ages. We rest in the living here. We rest in the loving here. We rest in the being here. With gratitude to the courageous band of Universalists who began this congregation in 1866. With gratitude to those through the years who have nurtured and sustained this spiritual home with their faith and their gifts. And with gratitude to the spirit of life that fills us with possibility and abundance, we rededicate this spiritual home and ourselves to the eternal vision of a world made fair and all her people united by the love that sustains and embraces all of us. May it be so, and together may the people say, Amen. And now would you join me in the words for extinguishing the chalice, which you'll find in your order of service. We extinguish these flames, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. May we carry these in our hearts and in our minds until we are together again. And now with gratitude for this house of memory and hope, a home that shelters those who love and strive and share, and blessed by one another, we who meet here to live, learn, care, and work toward our vision of the beloved community. Let us go out in the world now in joy and peace to inspire love, seek justice, and grow in community. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen.